weeks after the sit-in for student safety, President Gregory Fenves breaks his silence. This is In the News. I'm Sarah Schleed, and I'm here with Editor-in-Chief Spencer Buckner. Hi, Sarah. News Editor Megan Menchaca. Hey, Sarah. And Campus News Reporter Lauren Groby. Hi, Sarah. So last episode, we were waiting for an official university response to outcry about professors Coleman Hutchison and Sahotra Sarkar, who were on the spring 2020 course schedule, despite having been found in violation of sexual misconduct policies by the university. Executive Vice President and Provost Lori McInnes wrote a letter in response to the incident, which was published by UT News October 30th. Then last Thursday, Fenves sent a campus-wide email addressing the university's sexual misconduct policies. Uh, So what exactly did these responses say, Lauren? These uh, responses really addressed the university's sexual misconduct policies in general and also provided a couple updates about the changes um, that the university will be doing and the review process that they'll be conducting. In Fenves's email, he announced that they had approved uh, the hiring of an outside team of experts to uh, come and look at the university's policies and to review them. So that will be something that the university does at some point. Um, They also approved the hiring of three more uh, Title IX investigators for the Office of Inclusion and Equity. Uh, So they're expanding the staff there. Um, But otherwise, there was no mention of specifically professor misconduct. The protests were addressed and the university said that they valued student safety. And that was that was kind of the extent of their response. They acknowledged the changes that were upcoming, which are going to be very slow and the new people that they're hiring. And that was it. Did protesters and other students who have spoken out against this find this response to be adequate? Uh, No. (laughs) A big complaint that the students have is that the university is not naming the professors who were found in violation of sexual misconduct policies and instead is talking about this issue in general. The university also hasn't mentioned that in the last report that they released on uh, faculty and staff misconduct that there were 44 professors who had complaints filed against them. Um, They haven't talked about how many professors were found guilty at the university. So they're really not addressing any specifics about this issue. A lot of students want the university to acknowledge the two professors, Hutchison and Sarkar, um, that they were found guilty of misconduct and that they're teaching at the university and sort of informing the campus about that. And they're also asking that these professors be terminated, as well as um, a report naming the professors every semester who have complaints filed against them or are found in violation of misconduct policies. But it doesn't look like these demands will be being met anytime soon. Yeah, these these responses were disappointing, but I would say in in no way surprising um, coming from the university. Um, The fact that they did send out a campus-wide email was, was somewhat surprising since that is what Uh, myself and the organizers and student government had all requested. And I know a lot of students had wanted. Um, But, you know, with a university campus-wide email, if all students are going to get it, it's obviously not going to say anything that groundbreaking or interesting, really, or really what the students wanted. So, yeah, yeah, it was was, um, a a small win that they sent out something over email campus-wide. But at the same time, nothing really changed fundamentally. 
I have a question. I know I'm not the host of this podcast, but um, fire away. Why aren't they naming the professors in these emails? I was told that is within university policy as well as um, most higher education policy to not name specific faculty or staff members who have been involved in really any kind of litigation or disciplinary process. So they've said that they are not naming them specifically because of privacy concerns. And that's also just the generally accepted policy. Despite the fact that these professors have already been found guilty, their names are out there, they're public. The university will not be naming these people specifically. And so in the past, if there is a professor being disciplined for like sexual misconduct, like they never release... There's no public acknowledgement. The only people who would know about it would be the people who were involved in the complaint. So whoever filed the complaint against that professor um, and the professor themselves and uh, probably their department head. When a professor is found guilty of misconduct, that's not announced to the university that there was a professor found in violation. It's only something that the people who are directly involved with that know about. And the university sends out a report of how many complaints have been filed against professors and how many professors have been disciplined, how many were terminated, how many were taken off of tenure, Um, but they're never named and they do not release anything public after an investigation has been finished. The information is um, technically public though, at least the findings reports are, that say who the professor was and what they did, um, specifically if they were found in violation. We've requested those findings reports here at the Texan before and gotten them back. That's how we released the Phil Nemi story and the Coleman Hutchison thing to begin with. Um, the only issue is that, like we've been saying you know, forever, um, is this information is really hard to get because uh, you have to do it through Freedom of Information Act requests, uh, which don't always come back um, and stuff like that. So the, the university could be making this information more public, and they should, by all means, be making this information more public because um, you know, students are still at risk, but it's not prioritized making this information as public as it could be, which is you know, one of the reasons that many people are very rightfully saying that they, they don't think the university cares about their safety. From my understanding, I was reading some of the articles written by former editor-in-chief Liza Anderson. Some of these, one of the reports, I think against Sakar, only the university said it was only released because the victim had came out and spoken about the report. Is that, that true? That was, that was about Hutchison. And that, yeah, that is true. Because one of the, and so that's why they said they released it to us. But with the Phil Nemi stuff, um, the news reporter that found that information, there none of the um, people that um, had been involved in any of the cases. None of the students had come forward previously, but um, we were still able to get um, the findings reports detailing um, what he had done. So the the big concern that the university gives of not releasing findings reports when we ask for them is that they're afraid it will jeopardize student privacy. Um, But they've demonstrated by the reports they've been willing to give the Texan before that a student doesn't have to come forward for the report to come out. Is this also a safe time to say that when you file a complaint against a faculty member, it's also an extremely complicated process that is split up between three different offices and this paperwork gets bounced around all over the university. It starts in the Title IX office and then it goes to the Office of Inclusion and Equity. And that involves speaking to the department head of whatever department that faculty member is in. And then once that report is completed. The OIE then sends that to the provost because the Office of Inclusion and Equity does not actually determine disciplinary actions for faculty or staff members. That's the provost's job. And in the case of staff, it's HR. And as far as I'm aware, the provost does not have to provide any reasoning for the disciplinary actions that they choose. So trying to find these documents again after you have gone through this process can be extremely difficult because oftentimes people don't know which office it's located in. And they're hard to find. There's not like five different copies of these reports like floating around the university. Like maybe only one person has them. And 
it, it can be very difficult to get the information back once you've gone through this process if you haven't kept them. The university has not made a commitment to change any of this or to definitely make any of this more public or readily available, but they've only made a commitment to have an outside person look into their process and perhaps make suggestions that could lead to those things changing. Yes, they've said they'll have a team of experts looking at it and that changing their reporting policies, changing how things are filed, even changing the office structure are things that could be changed, but we won't really know until this team of experts is first hired officially and begins their work and then finishes it, which could take any amount of time. Right. They haven't given a timeline for that, correct? No, they, they, they've said they cannot provide any definite timeline at this point. Well, we will uh, see how that progresses, um, if it does, by the next episode or few episodes. Moving on to some city news, Austinites voted last Tuesday on 10 amendments to the state constitution, a Travis County proposition, and two city measures. 800,000 Travis County residents are eligible to vote, but prior to election day, County Clerk Dana de Beauvoir said she only expected 15% of the voting population to make it to the polls. Why is the turnout so low for constitutional elections? So we can't, we can't really be sure you know we can't ask people you know we people's reasons for not voting are different but a lot of times it is often the lack of media coverage you know presidential elections senate elections get a lot of play on cnn the local media channels but constitutional elections aren't really emphasized as much to the entire austin population state population and they're also not as divisive or partisan issues, which often bring people out to the polls because they want to express their views. I mean, we had one proposition about if county judges should be allowed to serve multiple positions. Not a lot of people have strong feelings about those issues, and so they're not necessarily um, willing to go go find an election place, research all the ballot initiatives, and cast their ballot. Oftentimes they're just willing to just stay home, let other people vote. I would, I would, I would disagree with the last point, at least, at least partially, um, like definitely constitutional elections. They're not very glamorous. There's not, you know, like a candidate you can put on TV for them. But I mean, I would say, especially with local elections and constitutional stuff as well, like this is some really impactful stuff that can make a big difference. Um, and some of it is, is pretty partisan and pretty like, hot button if people knew more about it like for instance the um constitutional um initiative that was voted on that would make it unconstitutional for texas to create an income tax um like that definitely has huge ramifications and is like highly partisan and highly contentious but because constitutional elections don't get a lot of airtime um and are definitely i i would say require like a higher kind of like degree of like knowledge and awareness to like encourage you to vote like yeah you just don't get as many people involved which is which is a shame because a lot of time like this local and constitutional stuff can have like some of the biggest impact yeah there could be things that like you hear you hear about after and you're like oh shoot i wish i had known about that because i have a stance on it yeah and i absolutely absolutely don't mean to imply that they're not there aren't aren't important things that just what some people just some that's the belief that some people have and that might be why they 
themselves do not vote, but that necessar- that isn't what I personally may believe. Did you all vote? Of course. Um, I vote uh, by mail into my home district, so no. I also voted, so yes. Nice. I had an error on my card, so I was not able to vote. Oh, Sarah. I know. I did an address change, and like, I have neat handwriting, but apparently they thought that my last name was Sunid, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was not registered to vote in the right place. Um, this is why people should be automatically registered, and the voter registration process should be as easy and painless as possible. Yeah, handwriting should not keep somebody from being able to vote. Um, that, that like, please don't write in and say that that was, like, a fixable problem that I just, like, wasn't aware of. Like, it's, like, it just didn't work out. Um, One thing I do want to add is that as uh, if we get right in. the turnout this year, a 12% turnout overall in the state of Texas was nearly the highest it's been in two decades. Wow. That's the, sad. Uh, for constitutional elections, the only time it was higher was when Texas passed a constitutional amendment banning gay marriage that had an 18% turnout in 2005. Sounds like Texas. Uh, so it's been the second highest turnout since then. Um, it, that also helped that we had a Houston mayoral race. So lots of people in Houston were showing up to the polls to vote for the mayor and also the constitutional amendments were on the ballot too. So Well, so what were some of the things on the uh, ballot this time? So there were various ballot initiatives. We talked about the judges one. I think another interesting one that got nearly the most support out of all the other initiatives was one, police dogs in Texas were classified as government property. And so once they were decommissioned... What were they before? They they, no, they used to be government property. Now they are... The vote was to make them no longer government property. Oh. And because they were government property, after they were decommissioned, they were to be destroyed or sold off. And so that was the constitution. The constitution didn't take into account living animals as government property. And so this amendment allowed them, since it was passed, the dogs will now be allowed to go home with their handlers, which they weren't allowed to do previously. Another important one was, uh, Spencer mentioned, uh, the state already does not allow for an income tax, but there was another proposition that would make it even harder for the state to pass an income tax. They increased the requirements of the Texas legislature and also for the Texas population to pass an income tax. So again, it's not impossible for the state to create an income tax, but they did pass restrictions into the Texas constitution that make it more difficult for the state to do so. There were also a couple local propositions, propositions A and B. A would have required the city council to uh, have voters, a super majority to use land for sports and entertainment facilities. And the other one would require uh, voter approval for um, to certain additions to the Austin Convention Center and would limit hotel tax revenue used for those improvements. And both of those propositions, um, before the amendment, even people endorsing those uh, propositions had pulled their endorsements, and those propositions, neither of them got support from Travis County. But Texans overall did approve nine amendments. They approved every one except for the judges' one that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully there will be more to discuss in next year's election. I just have an, a thought. There will perhaps be uh, more discuss in next year's election, I would say. Yeah. Maybe some more partisan contentious issues in 2020. Yeah, I just have a hunch. Lastly, uh, let's talk about Rodney Reed, the man from Bastrop who is convicted in 1998 of raping and murdering um, Stacy Stites. 
He has been on death row for 23 years, and his execution is scheduled for November 21st, but many believe he is innocent. For those who may be unfamiliar with this case, uh, what exactly happened, and what has happened since to make people believe that Reed is innocent? Yeah, so in 1998, um, Ronnie Reed, um, who who is black, um, was convicted by an all-white jury um, in Bastrop of, of the crime um, and sentenced to death following that, and he's been in prison ever since. Um, since the trial, there's been a lot of evidence that's come out in Rodney Reed's favor um, that pretty definitively a lot of people say proves that he didn't do it. Um, there's been demands for retrials. Um, his mother has called it a Jim Crow trial, um, and many people have been comparing it to lynchings that um, you know have marred the history of the United States um, since you know this country's inception, um, but just taking place in our legal system. Um, so Rodney Reed is sentenced to be murdered um, by the state of Texas on November 20th um, for doing a crime that he most likely did not commit. And that evidence keeps coming out um, to, you know, back up the fact that he did not commit this crime. Um, and the deck is still pretty much stacked against him. So, um, yeah, a pretty horrible um, and you know, incredibly infuriating case in our own backyard. And it's gotten um, national attention. It was recently covered, I think, in a two-part series on Dr. Phil. Um, and I believe Kim Kardashian and Beyonce are among some celebrities who have shown their support for Rodney Reed. Dr. Phil and Kim Kardashian, the face of American activism. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, on top of Kim Kardashian and Oprah and Beyonce, there have been multiple... I would say I think at least a dozen Texas lawmakers who have come out and asked for the governor to re-examine the case, not necessarily pardon him or stop the execution, but they they said that they want to make sure the public still has trust in the governor and the death penalty, and they want the governor to ensure that the Texas does not in, um, execute an innocent man. They're asking him to review the evidence, maybe grant a 30-day stay so that people who review evidence can review that evidence um, and making absolutely sure that he was correctly convicted of what he was charged with. Mm -hmm. And um, Megan, you attended the statewide rally outside the governor's mansion on Saturday. Uh, can you describe kind of like what went on? Yeah, there were hundreds of people there with signs and the rally organizers brought flags with Rodney Reed, you know, in bars, and they were raving it. That said, said, yeah, said, said innocent. innocent. Um, hundreds of people there. His family, his brother, his mother, were speaking there. Um, one of the cousins of Stacy Styles was also there. Stites. Stites, um, the victim in the case, and she was saying that she thinks that the state should re-examine the case or let Reed have a new trial to either prove his innocence or to reassert his guilt because she doesn't want. Uh, the incorrect man to be executed for um, killing and raping her cousin. So she's also urging the state to re-examine the case. Um, Reed is asking for a new trial so he can prove his innocence. And um, the one of the cousins of the victim is also asking for the same thing. And she also said that many of her relatives and family members are also asking for the state to take some action as well. And stop the execution in some manner. When is like the last moment that 
the execution could be like halted before November 20th. I think that there is, you know, there's a certain point, you know, if it's 30 seconds before the execution, I think, you know, at a certain point, the deadline is passed. I don't know the exact moment, you know, before they um, actually um, execute him or if it's an hour before, but I imagine the deadline is approaching and the governor hasn't, I believe, made any public statements or indicated that he is going to take action. He's also previously been presented with uh, evidence by Reed's lawyers, that questions the validity of the conviction, and he upheld the conviction by the all-white jury. Um, so that's what a lot of the uh, speakers at the rally were saying, is that um, Governor Abbott should take action, but he has shown in the past that he believes that the conviction is valid. And is he the only one with the power to stop this execution? I believe so. Spencer can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I think there might be one other avenue that's possible, um, but I think they're both equally The the Court of Appeals could uh, overturn his conviction, but they have upheld it so far. If they had overturned it, then their ruling would stand. But since the they've lost their battle in the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court didn't take up the case, Governor Abbott is their only avenue at this moment. I mean, you know, we, we have to fight to try to make sure that, you know, Rodney Reed sees actual justice um, and is hopefully, you know, released, but um, it won't change um, the systemic um, crushing white supremacy that our criminal justice system is built upon. Um, and the fact that um, black men are convicted and, and executed at much higher rates than anybody else in this country. So, yeah, hopefully we can save this man's life, but we also have to fight to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. Indeed. Well, that's all for this slightly somber episode. Thanks to Spencer, Megan, and Lauren for coming in. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so you can tune in in two weeks for another episode where we will talk more about what's in the news.